on Wednesday night uh, as a church, we just began reading through the Screw Tape Letters. If you're not familiar with the Screw Tape Letters, it's a book by C.S. Lewis that's designed to make you think about the nature of temptation. It's an incredibly insightful, fictional work. And, and how he puts it together is it's a series of letters from an elder demon instructing a younger demon on how to tempt and destroy a young man who's become a Christian. Now, last week I was struck by something. The older demon writes to the younger demon and says essentially this. One thing you've got to do is make sure he stays focused on his inner life. He needs to stay focused on his own exalted thoughts and feelings towards God. You need to keep him there and keep him, keep him from thinking about the most elementary and basic duties bound up in the Christian life. So, for instance, he writes and he says... Let him continue to think about just how much he loves God and never let him think about how unkind he is to his mother. Work that disconnect, he says, between spirituality and daily life. Whatever you do, keep him from making the connection. And that got me to thinking, Is it possible that we could be guilty of the same thing? Could we be guilty of thinking high thoughts about God? About His goodness, about His salvation, about His love, about His grace, but missing fundamental elements basic to living that out? Is it possible for you to come here on Sunday morning and lift your voice in song? And bow your head in prayer, but walk out oblivious, oblivious to the fact that there are fundamental matters of Christianity that you're totally not doing. I think our text today is a gift of God's grace, specifically geared to prevent us from such a terrible disconnect. What's this text about? It's about standing firm. It's about standing firm in faith. And who doesn't want to do that? Brother or sister, I I know you want to stand firm in faith. I know you want to hear from the Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant in a coming day. But my question is, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, let me tell you, it actually looks pretty basic. And it starts with loving the family of God. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16? We're in the book of 1 Corinthians as a church and we're rounding the bend of the last quarter mile stretch. And this Sunday we'll cover chapter 16, and next Sunday we'll 
just overview some things that we've learned throughout the course of the whole book. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, what is this about? Well, there are Christians in Jerusalem struggling financially, and Paul wants the Corinthians to love them by meeting their very real needs. So what does he tell them to do? Give systematically. On the first day of every week. So on Sunday, church, when you gather, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So this is a weekly thing. Every week, take some money out of your earnings and set it aside and store it up until I come, he says. So this is an every week thing. This is an every person thing. Each of you, the text says, is to put something aside and store it up. So it's an every week thing, it's an every person thing, and it's a give according to your ability thing. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. In other words, those who are well off, well, you're going to give more because you have more resources. Now, when Paul comes to Corinth, he's going to collect this gift. He's going to send it to Jerusalem by the hand of a group that the Corinthians themselves choose. And if they want Paul to go with them, well, he's willing. That's the idea. Now, I realize this may just seem like details at the end of a book, but it's not. It's love for the saints in real life. If there is one thing that we know as Christians we are to be about, it's love for one another. And this is his commandment, he says in 1 John, that we believe in the name of his Son and that we love one another. But you can believe that. You can say amen to that. You can think, oh, I know that text, right? But then you can miss the very real action that that calls for. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? James 2. I'm struck by two things that the Corinthians did here. Number one, they made a plan. They planned to love. So they didn't just leave it in the realm of a, of a good thought or a good intention. They, they made a plan to take real action. And number two, they made a plan to love Christians they'd likely never even met. The Corinthian church is blessing the Jerusalem church. So this is big-hearted love, Right? This is love beyond the walls of those you know in your local church. This is love that extends to the universal church. 
This is one reason we try to consistently pray for churches other than our own. I didn't tell John to to pray this morning for those other churches. He did it instinctively. Praise God. It's one reason we're happy to send Brad to Concord Community Church to fill that pulpit this morning. It's one reason why we've increased our support to Christ Community Church in Telugu, uh, Christ Community Telugu in Abu Dhabi, because they've got some very real and practical needs. And so bottom line, part of standing firm is loving the saints in real and practical ways. Now turn to verse 5. Here's another part of standing firm. Loving gospel laborers. Verse 5. I will visit you after I pass through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective ministry has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, and help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He'll come when he has the opportunity. The thread that holds all of this together is love. Isn't Paul's love for the Corinthians just obvious? He needs to visit them in order to collect the gift. We get that. But look, he he, he doesn't just want to fly in and fly out. He doesn't pull into the drive, take the money, and then go on his way. He wants to spend some time with them. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Love is about relationships. Relationships take time. And Paul wants to invest the time in his relationship with them. He's not just about getting something done. Checking off the collect the gift for Jerusalem list. They're not just a project or a means to, to get him what he wants to get done, which is to get the money to Jerusalem. He wants to be with them. His love for the Corinthians is obvious. And notice he wants them to love him. Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. You know what that actually means? It means financially supporting him. Help me on my journey means provide for my needs so the gospel can go forward. So love for Paul and love for the gospel means giving money. And then look at Timothy. Isn't Timothy's love for the Corinthian church obvious too? Paul's already sent him to Corinth. We we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We see that. Paul's about to send him again 
Timothy is, of course, willing to go. Why? Well, I'll tell you, it's not because his visits are easy. He's Paul's representative to correct their doctrinal drift and the sin in their lives. And so these visits aren't a cakewalk. But he's doing this. He's willing to do this. Why? Because he loves them in Jesus Christ. These are Christ's sheep. And so he wants to help them in their faith. And so he is willing to come. And then notice this. Paul wants the Corinthians to love Timothy. Paul's love for the church is obvious. Paul tells the church, you should love me. Timothy's love for the church is obvious. Paul tells the Corinthians, your love for Timothy should be obvious. He says, see that you put him at ease among you. For he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Timothy's got some hard work to do. He's going to correct some doctrinal drift among you. He's going to rebuke some of you for sin in your lives. But he's doing this out of love. See that you love him. And that looks like putting him at ease among you. Instead of being hostile or defensive with him. Receive him. Embrace him. Respect him. Thank him. Let a righteous man smite me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Psalm 145. And then look at Apollos. His love for the Corinthians was obvious too. He, he labored among them. He invested in them. Now, if you actually remember, Apollos is one of the teachers in chapter 1 that the Corinthians were sinfully lining up behind and, and backing. Hey, I'm, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Cephas. Well, I'm just of Christ. Okay, Uh, that's not a good situation, but this lets us know that Apollos actually had nothing to do with that. He wasn't to blame for any of that because Paul actually wants Apollos to come back. He's going to be helpful to you guys. Now, for whatever reason, Apollos doesn't want to come right now, but he'll come at some point. Let's just step back for a second and just tie these strings together. Verses 1 through 12 may at first glance look like just random things, but they're not. They reveal the priority and practicality of love. Love the saints by meeting their needs. And love gospel laborers by receiving and respecting them and meeting their needs. How blessedly simple this is, right? And how blessedly helpful to you this is. Just think about this. Think about your money. Wherever you move your money, you move your heart. Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, 
there will your money be also. The principle is wherever you, whatever you give to, you also become increasingly interested in and love more. So to give to the needs of the saints, what does it do? It moves your hearts in love towards the saints. To give to the needs of gospel labors, what does that do? It, it moves your heart to love the gospel more. And, and loving the saints and loving the gospel, what does that lead to? A life that's lived more for the glory of God and less for yourself and the passing pleasures of the world. That's what you want, isn't it? Yes. Yes, of course that's what you want. Then don't leave it in the realm of the spiritual inner self. Give to the needs of the saints and give to the needs of those who venture for the gospel. Now think about this. Think about receiving and respecting gospel laborers. You know, those who labor in the gospel have some hard things that they have to do sometimes. We have to talk to you about sin and drift in your life. Paul's done that again and again in this letter. He's sending Timothy to do the same thing again. And the Holy Spirit in every age appoints elders and churches to do the same. Family, as your elders, God wants us to come to you and say, hey... I'm seeing something that concerns me. Can we talk? Hey, I, I'm, I'm seeing something that just doesn't smell or seem right. Can we talk? And if you determine ahead of time to respect and receive us when we come to you with concerns, that will bless your socks off. It will make it easier for you to hear us out. It'll make it easier for you to not be defensive. It'll make it easier for you to receive a rebuke or correction or a concern in the spirit in which it's given, which is out of love for your good, and nothing but good comes from this. This protects you from sin. Protects you from foolish and hurtful decisions. It protects you from running headlong into a spiritual ditch. Do you see what this is doing for you? It blesses you by arcing your life more towards eternal glory and away from eternal danger. And that's what you want. Of course that's what you want. Then determine to receive and respect those who labor for your soul, particularly your elders. But let me also say, and please hear this, you should labor to be grateful for any brother or sister that comes to you with a concern. They are doing you good. Well, Paul brings another piece in here, which is really not another piece, but the Corinthians are dull. We, frankly, are dull, and so we need to 
stamp it on our foreheads that if we want to stand firm in faith, we need to stand fast to the gospel. Look at verses 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is, this is the heart of the passage, actually. Everything, everything flows into this and everything flows out of this. Be watchful translates a word that means to be in constant readiness or to be on the alert. What do you think they need to be alert about? Oh, I don't know. How about anything that could move a believer away from the gospel? From the gospel's message itself. From the truths upon which the gospel is built. Or from what the gospel requires. Stand firm in faith translates a phrase that means to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. I'm reminded of 15.1 where Paul commends the Corinthians for standing on the gospel. I'm reminded of 15.58 where Paul exhorts them to persevere in the gospel. Here again, he exhorts them to not give up the faith. It's as where he, he gets them in a moment where they're listening to them and he says to them, don't give up the core truths that we hold dear. We are born in sin. We deserve the wrath of God. Jesus came to die for sinners and rise for sinners and God saves sinners by grace through faith in Jesus. And Jesus is coming back again. Stand fast in these truths, Corinthians. Stand fast in these truths, redeeming grace. And then act like men. Be strong. I put these together because they belong together. Act like men translates a a word that means conduct yourself in a courageous way. If you're reading the NIV, it's a good translation. It says, be courageous. So, be courageous. Be strong. In the Old Testament, these words were paired together in several passages. In 2 Samuel King, David's military commander, Joab, rallied his men for battle, and he said, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. I love that text. In Psalm 27, 14, David encourages himself by saying, Be strong and wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Why does Paul tell us we need to be courageous and strong? Because the Christian life is war. You are at war, brothers and sisters. I know it doesn't feel like that. But you're at war. When you became a Christian, you signed up for the fight. And the fight won't be over until you either die or Jesus returns. And so until that time... You have enemies. Yourself. Sometimes you are your own worst enemy. Sin remains, and sin puts up a nasty fight. Somebody say amen or oh my, right? 
Thank you, Reuben. When sin is tugging at you, it takes courage and it takes strength to believe that Jesus is better than whatever forbidden temptation is hearkening. So you've got yourself as an enemy. Great. You've also got the world. The world has always been hostile to Jesus, and it's always been hostile to those who follow Jesus. It takes strength and courage to swim against the current of the culture. It takes strength and courage to be on the wrong side of history. It takes strength and courage to share the gospel. And then, and then you've got the devil himself. If the devil cannot destroy you, he makes it his aim to turn you into a miserable Christian. He aims to distract you with endless entertainment. He aims to depress you with various heartaches. He means to distance you from the church with activities that crowd out your calendar. He aims to dull your heart for the lost by negative responses. It takes strength and courage to see through all of those schemes and to resist Him, standing firm in your faith. And then finally, let all that you do be done in love. (laughs) Well, would you look at that? We're back to love again. Paul just talked about love. Why is he talking about love again? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because it's the chief virtue of the Christian life. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So my question is, do you want to stand firm? I'm struck by the fact that in 13 and 14, we've got two truths that are, that are part of that. There's the peace about, about what we believe and what we confess. We believe and confess gospel, doctrinal truth with a capital T. We hold fast to gospel truth. But equally important is how you live out that faith that you confess. Let all that you do be done in love. We hold fast to gospel faith and we hold fast to gospel love. Now, speaking of love, somebody's come to Paul's mind. 
It's as though he's, he's, he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he writes, let all of you be done in love. And this mental image of a particular brother at Corinth pops into his mind. Look at verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanos were the first converts in Achaia. Uh, just, just pause there. Stephanos was the first Christian at Corinth. So Paul went there. He's, he's ministering the gospel, and somehow Stephanos heard it, and he and his entire family come to faith. Praise God. And chapter 1 actually tells us that, that, that this guy and his family is one of the few that Paul actually personally baptized. But now look at what Paul says about them. What's significant about them? And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Gospel love. Just follow me for a second. They came to faith. They came to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that love couldn't help but to translate into love for Jesus' people. There's gospel faith. There's gospel love. And it's so real life. This love isn't a spiritual ideal detached from real life. They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I'm sure they were giving to those who had need. I'm sure they were exercising hospitality. I'm sure they were meeting with believers to pray and talk about Scripture. I'm sure that they were comforting saints weeping over loss. I'm sure that they were helping saints who were struggling with their sin by being accountability for them. I'm sure that they were strategizing with the saints in their living rooms over their couches about how to address challenges in life in a way that glorifies Jesus. You know what essentially happened? Their lives totally changed. Love for Jesus and love for the family of God became what they we're excited about. Do you want to stand firm in faith? And follow their example. Verse 16. <laughs> it just keeps going. Be subject to such as these. And to every fellow worker and laborer. Stephanos became a leader in the church. Follow his example. Follow the examples of all church leaders for that matter. I'm reminded of Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And imitate their faith. Paul concludes this little section by saying in verse 17, I, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanos and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. Paul and the Corinthians were separated by distance, of course, and these guys came and visited and it was an encouragement to him. Paul says, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Now throw your eyes onto the last few verses here. 
verse 19. The churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Hey, make sure to tell them, I really say hi. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, oftentimes introductions and conclusions get treated a bit like just kind of throwaway portions of the letter. Not that we would ever say that, but I think we kind of just approach them as as on-ramps to the big deal and then off-ramps, you know. But here... This is a demonstration of the love that Paul has been talking about. Love for God's family is so practical that it fleshes itself out even in greetings. You read this and you're struck by the warmth and the affection that's here. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Sheesh. Now, we're not in a Greco-Roman context where family would greet one another with kisses. But the point is, we really love each other. And so that translates into displays of appropriate affection. Even when we meet a warm smile, a man hug with a slap on the back real fast, a fist bump. A handshake, an eye contact, a it's good to see you. Why do we do these things? Not out of politeness, out of love. Look at 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I think the most important verse here is 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Do you know what this is? This is the root of everything that we have been talking about this morning. Standing fast in the faith, holding fast to gospel truth, holding fast to gospel love. Where does it all come from? Love for Jesus. Jesus Christ has captured our heart because he did the unimaginable for us. He took our place. Born in sin. Born rebels against God. Born deserving the wrath of God. Born loving ourselves. Born in bondage to the devil. Born lost sheep forever wandering about from ditch to ditch and never finding good pasture. That's us. Jesus Christ came. Left heaven lived as a man, experienced all that we experience except he never sinned. And then he died and he rose to take the punishment that we deserved. This is the love of God 
And this is love, the Apostle John says. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, you have been loved with a perfect love. You have been loved with an overwhelming love. You have been loved with an undeserving love. And this is the root of why you do all that you do. This is why you hold fast to gospel faith. This is why you hold fast to gospel love. Because you have been loved. And so you cannot help but to love Him back. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His head, His hands and feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to know that what God is offering you is His love. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. It doesn't matter how many times you've heard the offer and refused. He offers His love to you still. God is not calling you to do something this morning. He is calling you to receive His love by trusting in His Son. Receive Him as your Savior. Receive Him as your Lord. Repent from holding Him off and instead run to Him and embrace Him by faith. To my brothers and sisters, remember that love for Jesus gets really practical. Are there aspects of the text today that have exposed just blind spots in your life? Disobedience in your life? What are they? Has your love for Jesus not resulted in giving generously and sacrificially, consistently to meet the needs of the saints and to provide for gospel laborers and to invest in gospel work? Has your love for Jesus not connected to the very real responsibility and obligation and blessing of you giving 
consistently and generously and sacrificially to his work? Does it relate to receiving and respecting those who labor the gospel among you? Are you open to the text message from me that says, hey, could we chat? By the way, sometimes I just want to get coffee and know how you're doing. I'm kind of a social guy. And I, like the Apostle Paul, love you. And so I want to spend time with you. But do you receive and respect me or Brad or another one of our elders when we do come to you and we do say, hey, something doesn't seem right. Can we talk? Are you open to that? God would have you to be. Are you open to your brothers and sisters doing that? God would have you to be. Does it relate to devoting yourself to the service of the saints? And please keep in mind, this is not necessarily super spiritual. Paul seemed to think it translated into such simple things as to how we greet one another. So love for the people of God looks like greeting one another. I think it looks like being open to new friendships. I think it looks like hospitality. I think it looks like to just showing, it it, it can look as simple as just showing up. Showing up to home group or to prayer. It can look as simple as just asking how you can pray for your brothers and sisters. Does your love for God translate into love for His people, translate into very simple action items? Are there areas in which this text has exposed blind spots? Does it relate to not being strong and courageous in holding fast to the gospel? in proclaiming the gospel, in speaking about your love for Jesus Christ to those who don't know Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us not be deceived by the tempter who would have us to keep our our faith in the realm of feelings of warmth and affection towards God. But then there being a disconnect between what we think we feel and believe and what we actually do with our lives. May our love for Jesus translate into love for the family of God and for the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and grace and as a result of your love and grace, We love. Help us, Father, to stand firm in faith and to let all that we do be done in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.